Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. You know, a lot of times our lack of being able to celebrate with someone else when they're blessed may keep us from being blessed for the simple reason that if I'm a father and I give a gift to one of my children and I see that it makes my other child angry, there's probably not much chance I'm going to give him the same gift. Why would I want to make him angry? Why, if he's asking for bread, would I give him a scorpion? And see, we always read that the one way, like, well, he'll never give you something bad. But on the same hand, what it could mean also is, is if you're asking for something nourishing, I'm not going to give you something that in the past I've seen has been harmful. And by the way that you've responded to someone else, may tell the Father the way that you would respond if it was given to you without even realizing it. Good word, Roy. All right. <laughs> um, so open your uh, Bibles up to Romans chapter 8. I want to talk about a real familiar verse and, and just share something that God was showing me uh, a couple weeks ago. I wasn't here um, last week. Uh, Tom spoke, and I'm thanks, so thankful for him. I can call him on a Saturday, and if you know Tom, that's not his style. Uh, Tom's a teacher that likes to prepare for a long time ahead of times and have all these things laid out and be able to, to just go where he wants to go and know that you're coming back next week to the study and that he can tie up any loose ends. And, but on the same hand, he's also willing to be used. And so when I asked, he said, uh, okay. <laughs> and, and I'm thankful for that. Thanks, Tom. Um, I'd strip. I'd, it's frustrating to me. Um, because it started out as a common cold and I prayed for it and it turned into strep. Anybody want me to pray for them? <laughs> and it, I know what the Word says. And I believe it. It's frustrating, right? But, but you know what? It's that thing that God spoke to me a while ago and said, even in those times, you can thank me that you're even feeling frustration because that means that you believe there's something more than what you're seeing. If that was all there was, you couldn't even be frustrated. You'd just lay in bed and accept it and say, well, I guess that's all there is. But that little frustration, that little irritation, that little thing inside of you that says this is not right is proof. And it has to be a gift from Him because it's faith. Faith means that I believe something I don't see. So even if I don't see it happen, the fact that I believe it means that I have faith and faith is a gift from God. So I have to thank Him. Thank you, God, that I believe there's more. That I'm not just a victim of circumstance, that I'm not just powerless in this world, that I actually believe there's something more. And even if I don't see it in this moment, I'm thankful for the fact that I'm not okay being not okay. And then I'm like, all right, well, I can live with that. Because I'm not settling on something. Um, but it is frustrating. Especially when you've, when you've prayed for people and seen them recover. When you've walked into a hospital room where someone that the doctor said was going to die in two days because their liver was not working. It was shut down. And you pray for them. And three days later, their liver's working. And two weeks later, they're home. Well. Healed. And then you, you, you throat is scratchy. You lay hands on it. And it turns into something worse. I'm just being honest. I know the halo's probably shrinking, but that's where I'm at, and that's the truth. <laughs> that's what happened. But how many of you guys have, <clears throat> I know you all have, but, but you've heard this said, well, you know God works all things for good. You know, it seems like anytime there's a, there's a tragedy or anytime something goes wrong or, or anytime someone has something that they don't like in their life or something like that, you know, there's always someone to come along um, that, that knows the Word and, and with really good intentions and says to them, well, you know, God works all things for the good. And then they walk away and you're standing there thinking, okay, I mean, I believe that because I know it's in the Word, but I'd love to see it. And, and I think sometimes if we're not careful, we take verses and we give half-truths to people. And a half-truth is dangerous because it can raise an expectation that's not fulfilled because there's a, there's a, there's a second part to that verse. Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say that God causes all things. Okay, if you stop there, it's really dangerous. That's, if you stop there, it's even worse than just saying, well, God causes all things to work together for good. 
It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So there's a, there's a prerequisite here. It's like a lot of promises of God. Jesus said, and, 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 and I, I call you friends if you do what I tell you. He said, this is, if you say you love me, how can you say you love me? If, if you love me, do what I've commanded you. He said, if you knock... It'll be opened. If you seek, you'll find. If you ask, it will be given. There's, there's something required on our end. He doesn't say sit on the couch and you'll seek, find, and it will be given. He's not opening doors that you're not knocking on a lot of times because He told you to knock. And we're like, God, why is every door shut? Well, because you're not even knocking on the doors that are shut. Start knocking and maybe He'll start opening because the Word says if you knock, it'll be opened to you. It's not this, God's not in heaven with just orchestrating every little thing and then saying things to us so that we feel like we have a part to play, but really, we really have no part to play. He didn't say, knock and it will be open to you. And if you don't knock, I'll open it anyways. Or seek and you'll find, but I'll make sure you find it even if you don't seek it. I'm just saying that to be cute so that you feel involved. That's not what he's doing. Like he literally said, if you seek, you'll find. If you, then you. And so here it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, so there's two requisites. There are two things that are required for God to work all things for good. And of those two, there's only one that's actually changeable. Because... It says in, in later on in Romans when he's talking about how he called the Israelites as his people and he gave the gift of, of the old and the new covenant to him. It says the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. In other words, when he called them his people, he's not going to change his mind about them. Israel will be his people. It's what it says. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. In other words, the free gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, the things that he gave as a gift to his people. The whole chapter is about it now. It starts, and we know that all of Israel will be saved. And then Paul explains why all of Israel will be saved, and in there is included, and the free and, and we, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. In other words, he's not going to change his mind. That's what repent means. Change the way you think, change your mind, metanoia. So God's not going to change his mind about Israel being his people. Now they may wander, they may stray, they may do things that he hates. He may actually tell Moses sometimes that he wants to kill them. But he doesn't, because they're his people. And so if God called you, then that's not changing. So if you're called by God, you're called by God. That part of the equation is unchangeable. There's nothing the enemy can do to change God's mind about the fact that He's called you as His, pers- as his people. Many are called, few are chosen. That doesn't mean God calls everybody and then goes, I know I called all of you, but guess what? I'm only going to choose a few. So you get in and you get in and he's not Oprah. You get a car and you get a car. You know, he's not, that's not what he's doing. Many are called, few are chosen. mean that he's the free call of salvation is Jesus saying, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God, and later on, uh, Paul's writing, he says that, that, you know, for God is not, uh, or Peter says, for God is not, um, um, slack in his promises us towards, but is willing that none would perish and all would have everlasting life. So the call, Jesus on the cross said, if, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all to myself. Everything that needed to be taken care of for everybody. It was the free gift of salvation to humanity and the call is for everyone and the people who actually respond and receive what Jesus did in their, in, into their hearts and make him their Savior, make him their Lord. They're chosen of God. But all are called. So if you're called of God, that's, then, then, then you've filled one of these two promises. And if you know this promise and you're actually praying and asking God to work it for your good, chances are you know Him and you're called by Him. So that's unchangeable. So then that means the second part. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. So if I'm the enemy and I'm on the earth to kill, steal, and destroy, and that's what he's here to do he's real there is an enemy in the land the devil's real we don't have to run around trying to find him behind every tree but i promise you he's behind a tree somewhere if his job is to kill steal and destroy then that means every promise of god that's made towards your life he has a plan and he wants to try and kill it to steal it and destroy it 
He wants to kill you. He wants to steal everything you have, and he wants to destroy your life. That's what he's out to do. That's why, that's why like, little sin is not little sin. There's no such thing as just little sin. Because every bit of it is meant to destroy your life. It's meant to kill you. And so, if he was trying to, to keep this from happening in your life because he doesn't want things to work for your good, then maybe he would try really hard to keep you from fulfilling that first promise, that first part of the requirement, which is that you love God. And maybe the thing that was done to you had two effects. One was the original sin. He moved on somebody. He entered into somebody. He used somebody to do something to try and hurt you. So somebody stole something from you. There's the original sin. It was out to steal from you, and it did what it was supposed to do when someone came into your home and took something that was yours. And that's bad enough that something's been stolen from you. But really what he would love more than that is for you to then take the bait, become offended, and allow hatred into your heart towards the person who stole something from you. Why? Well, because the Word says this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. So what if by our response to the thing that was done to us, we're over here praying on one hand for God to work this for good and God's in heaven waiting for us to actually meet the requirements so that He can move on our behalf. And because we've allowed hatred into our heart, He can't work things for good because He said He would work all things for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. And how can you say that you love Him in this situation when you hate the person who did the thing to you that you're supposed to love whom you have seen? And what if you could stand there and pray this prayer and stand on this Scripture and wait until Jesus comes back or you turn blue in the face and wait and demand that God make good on His Word. God, You said that You would work all things for good for those that love You and are called according to Your purpose. And the whole time, You have hatred and anger towards the person that did something or towards the person that caused this situation to happen. And you're waiting for God to move and you become frustrated and you start to turn your back on the Scripture and say, well, I guess He's not going to make it work for good in my life. Maybe that meant for when we're in heaven. And so then we take another Scripture and we move it into heaven because we didn't see it manifest here on the earth. And because rather than examining ourselves when we don't see something happen that the Word says, we would always rather just think, well, I guess that must mean for in heaven. So when I get to heaven, then He'll reward me, and then it will be worked for good. That's not what He's talking about. Why? Well, because if you're in heaven, you were called and you love Him. There's nothing required on your end. So he wouldn't even have to write that in there. There's no point in making that point in the Scripture. He would just say God works all things for good. But there's something required of us. And I was thinking about that a lot, and I was thinking, how many times in my life has something happened and I've allowed anger and bitterness and hatred to come into my heart because of what was done to me or because of what was done to somebody. And then I'm praying and asking God to make good on His promise all the while God's in heaven hoping and praying that I will actually make good on my part of it so that He can actually move. Me and Patty had a man, um, when, we, when our church first started, some of you guys know this story, some of you don't, but when our church was younger, we did a lot of homeless outreach. And I remember one time I met a guy um, named Dennis. A lot of you guys knew him. And we, in the course of doing our outreach stuff, I got to talk to him and I said, man, Dennis is different. I told Patty that many times. I said, there's something different about this guy. He's not, he's not like a lot of the other people. There's something different about him. And I started to hang out with him and, and go to breakfast with him. And I'd pick him up and then I'd drop him off. He lived underneath a bridge. And um, we started to spend more and more time with him. And then all of a sudden, one day, he wasn't there when he was supposed to be. When I was supposed to meet him for breakfast, and I went, and he wasn't there, and I thought, something must be wrong, because that's not like him at all. And then for a couple weeks, we didn't hear from him. And I remember, I, I was actually talking to Patty about it one day. I said, I, I haven't seen Dennis. I haven't heard from him. I'm worried. I hope he's okay. And then one day, my phone rang. I didn't recognize the number. 
Actually, I did. No, it was his cell, cell phone. He had a cell phone. I tried calling him. I couldn't, couldn't get a hold of him. And I said, oh, there's Dennis. So I answered the phone, and he says, hey, Roy, it's Dennis. I thought, geez, you know, it's loud. And uh, so I said, hey, Dennis, how are you? Yeah, I'm calling because I figured everyone must be worried about me. He's just shouting almost. I thought, goodness, I turned the volume down a little more. And I'm like, yeah, actually, I was just talking to Patty the other day, wondering where you were. Yeah, I figured you guys were probably all wondering. I've been in ICU for the past 10 days. And uh, I didn't have my cell phone. I couldn't get a hold of anybody. It wasn't charged. I couldn't talk to anybody. And I, I, I just figured everyone's probably worried about me. And then all of a sudden in the background, I heard doctors talking. And I, made, and I realized it just dawned on me. He wants to make sure that everybody in his room knows that people haven't come to see him, not because nobody cares about him, but because nobody knew where he was. Because he'd been in the hospital for 10 days and hadn't had a single visitor. And he wanted to make sure the doctors knew people care about me. And I said, yeah, we, we, we were really worried. Um, he said, well, I'm getting out in a couple of days. wonder if you could pick me up and give me a ride home. And I said, yeah, we can do that. So, um, so me and Patty were going the day that we were going to pick him up, and it's raining as we're going there to pick him up. And I'm just, I know what I want to ask her, but I also know that, you know, a mom in her home and kids, and, and I'm, we're getting closer to the hospital, and I'm like, I better ask now. And I said, hon, um, we, we can't drop him off in the rain under the bridge. And she said, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I said, can we bring him home just for tonight and we'll try to figure something out for him? And she said, okay. Listen, if, if your husband asks you if you can bring something home just for the night, it's never just for the night. I don't care if it's a puppy or a homeless man. <laughs> and I said, just for the night, and we'll, we'll figure out something for tomorrow, but I'm not dropping him off in the rain back underneath that bridge when he's just getting out of ICU. He had massive kidney failure. And um, and she said, "Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. He can he can come home." She's actually excited about it, which I was like, "Oh, this must be God." And um, it, well, because you have to understand, our, our home is you know a, a woman's home is that's that's her home, and and my wife's way more concerned about the safety of our children than I am. I I push them down hills in in shopping carts, you know, and she just cringes and hides the whole time and tries to bubble wrap them. And, um, and so we went to the hospital and there was Dennis waiting with his bag and he got in the car. Hey, thanks for picking me up. And so we left the hospital and I turned to go back towards Greer and he said, Hey, where are we going? I said, you're going to come home with us. We're not going to drop you off under that bridge. It's cold. It's raining. You can come to our house and have dinner and we'll figure something out. Well, one day turned into two and two turned into four and four turned into a week and a week turned into a month and months turned into months. And Dennis lived with us and was part of the family. Every night, he would have dinner with us. He had a table place at the table. It was set for him by Patty and she would cook dinner and Every morning, we and him would get up like brothers and have coffee together, and I'd bring him to work and drop him off on my way, and then I'd pick him up at the end of the day and bring him home with me. He had his own room downstairs. We got him cable, and he had his own bathroom and a way to come in and out the downstairs, and, uh, and he just became part of the family. And, then, and he became part of the church family, too. And um, See, Dennis was, was 12 years old when he became homeless. And he was a foster child. He'd bounced around from foster home to foster home. And the last one that he ended up at, anytime something went wrong in the home, anytime any of the guy's kids did something wrong, he took it out on Dennis. So it didn't matter who did it. Dennis got punished. And the last time, the dad came home really angry about something that happened, and he punched Dennis in the head. And he punched him so hard in the ear that his eardrum ruptured and blood poured out of his ear, and he's still deaf in that ear today. And at 12 years old, he said, I, I'm, this guy's going to kill me, so I'll take my chances out there. And he took off, and he went to live underneath a loading dock at a warehouse. And the, the warehouse guys would take care of him. They'd bring him food, blankets, clothes, and stuff like that until he was old enough to fend for himself. He was 52? 
50-something years old, had been homeless since he was 12. He had his first birthday party ever in his life here at this church. We gave him a birthday party, and everyone pitched in and bought him a moped so that he could drive himself to work and anywhere else he wanted to go. And he was so proud of that thing. He'd pull it into the garage every night and wipe it down, clean it. I'm serious. It was, you would have thought it was his Lamborghini, <laughs> the way he treated it. He'd wipe it down. He had a lock for it. He was real particular with it. I asked him one time if I could drive it, and he's like, you, do you know how to drive it? I'm like, who do you think got the thing to the church, bro? <laughs> You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so he just became part of the family. And everyone knew Dennis. If you, came, you, if you came here at that time, if you've been here for a long time, you know who I'm talking about. And, uh, and he opened up more and more. And, you know, he just was part of the family. And uh, so much so that, that we were going to New England, we were doing some services up there, and we left Dennis home alone at our house, gave him the run of the house. Well, before we left, he said, he said hey, um, I know that, I know that you, you guys have been talking about repainting the, the living room and kitchen. How about while you guys are gone, I do that for you? I, I want to do something to show you how thankful I am for all you guys have done for me. You, being you'll be gone, I could just move everything into the living room. I wouldn't have to worry about people coming in, touching the paint. I wouldn't have to clean up and put everything back every night. I could just move it, paint everything, and put it back while you guys are gone. And it wouldn't be a hassle. I said, yeah, I mean, that'd be awesome if you want to do that. You don't have to. And he said, no, no, I want to. I said, okay. And so uh, me and Patty went and bought the paint and brought the paint home, and we left and we were gone, I think, for four days, maybe five. When we got home, when we walked in the door, something was wrong. Just something was wrong. You, you, have you ever walked into your house and just knew something's off, something's not right? You don't know what it is, you can't put your finger on it, but there's just the peace that was normally there, the feeling of home, whatever it was, it just, something was off. And I started looking around at the walls, and I noticed that one wall was painted really sloppy. One wall was partially painted. There was paint dripped all over the place. And it just was, I mean, it looked like someone spent maybe 20 minutes painting, just quickly throwing paint on the wall. I was like, what the heck? And so me and Patty looked at it and Patty's like, we, we got to ask him. You know, I said, I said, yeah, I got to go talk to him. So he was downstairs in his room and I walked downstairs and I said, hey, Dennis, and he was sleeping. He woke up. Oh, hey. I said, hey, man. Uh, what happened with the painting? And he freaked out on me. Like, I could never have imagined the response that, it, that, that came out of his mouth. He jumped up, like just jumped up out of bed, looked at me and said, I knew this was too good to be true. I knew you'd turn on me. I said, I knew it. I knew that I knew sooner or later you guys would be like everybody else and turn on me and I knew it was coming. I knew it was too good to be true. And I said, "What are you talking about? You it was your idea." No, you know what? I'm out of here. I said, "What in the world?" And uh and he's just angrily packing all his stuff up and I'm sitting there just so puzzled going, "Did I say like did I say it with a mean face? I don't know. I can't. I just can't imagine what was going on. And um, and he said, "I'm out of here. Don't try to find me." And he took off with his stuff, and he went tearing off up the road, and came back and said, "Can I get my blanket?" <laughs> no. Can I have a blanket? That's what it was. Could I? Could I take a? <laughs> yeah, he did too. Could I take a comforter? <laughs> you know that had to kill his pride. You know, you go storming off. Don't try to find me. <laughs> Two minutes later, ding dong. <laughs> oh, could I have a blanket? <laughs> so we gave him a comforter. Actually, gave him a sleeping bag, and he took off. And uh, and I, I and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta talk to him. I gotta figure out what happened. And I, 
I went driving up the road and I saw him and he was in the parking lot of a old Kmart and Greer that was closed down walking and I pulled up in the car and I said, Dennis, why don't you get in the car and let's just go for, no, and just took off. I said, okay. So I went home and the next day I was just like, man, I got to find him. I got to find him. And so I felt like I prayed about it and I felt like he was living behind that Kmart where I'd last seen him. So I went back behind that Kmart and there was an old walk-in freezer and I noticed one of the panels of the freezer was bent out and I went over and I pried it open and I poked my head in and I said, Dennis? Mm. He kind of came stumbling towards the entrance and came out. This big gash on his forehead. Blood all over his face. He's covered in urine, covered in his own poop and just reeks like alcohol. I mean, he's, he's so drunk he could hardly stand up. And I realized he'd start drinking while we were gone. And uh, we, we, me and Patty kind of figured that, but, but then it kind of confirmed it. And so I said, Dennis, what are you doing? And he said, I, was just, I fell and hit my forehead on a curb. And I said, I've been trying to call you. Where's your phone? And it got stolen from me. Someone took all my money and my phone and probably what gave him the gash on his forehead. And I said, man, you, this, isn't the, this life's not for you anymore. You've got to come home. You don't want me. I said, yeah, we do. We do. And I helped him get in the car and shut the door and got him home, got him into the shower, got the nasty clothes off him and had him wash up and gave him fresh clothes. And he slept for a while and he woke up. He was kind of sobered up. And me and Patty sat and talked with him and, and just... He was then crying, and he was so sorry, and and uh, and you know th- th- I I just messed things up, you know I messed things up. I had a good thing and I screwed it up. It's what I always do, and and I said no, you didn't you didn't screw anything up. I said I already you know finished painting, repainted some of the you know some of the stuff, and I said it's not a big deal. I said we didn't even ask you to paint. That wasn't the problem. I just didn't know if something was wrong, or I just wanted to know what happened. And he said, yeah, I, you guys left, and no one drank, and I, you know, he hadn't, he'd been sober since he'd lived at our house, and, and then I just, one thing led to another, and uh, I said, well, you know, we didn't move your stuff out of your room, your room's still there, and I said, you can just, you can just go downstairs, and, and you can, um, you can have your room, and we'll just, like it never happened. Everything's forgiven. And I said, I've, I've made plenty of mistakes and I'm thankful that people don't still hold those things against me. Why would I do that to you? And he's like, I just, I don't believe you guys are doing this. And I said, well, we are. I said, it's, God loves you. He's after you and he, we're not going to kick you out because of that. Oh, thanks so much. Well, the next night he didn't come home and the next morning, was it you? Did you call me and tell me the church got broken into, or did I call you? I think I called you, maybe, or you called me. Either I called Merle, or Merle called me and said the church got broken into, and Merle's guitar was stolen. He used to play guitar and leave his guitar here. It's like a, like over two thousand, twenty-five hundred dollar guitar, was stolen, and and we knew it was Dennis. I mean, a, I just knew, you know, how you just know things. But B, Patty knew because. When she came up here, we, we came up together and, and she looked and someone had made coffee. The person had broke in. <laughs> and, and he'd lived with us for months and so we knew his, his habits. And he couldn't just take all the sugar he needed and then stir his coffee. He was real particular about how it tasted. So he would put sugar in, stir it, taste it, and then he would go back into the sugar bowl. And every time he did, wet coffee would drip into the sugar bowl and make little sugar babies in the bowl yeah and so the coffee pot was was on with a scorched pot of coffee in it and the sugar bowl was open with little sugar babies in it and we just knew it was Dennis and so um so we were going to file an insurance report, and we, so we called the police because the insurance said, well, you have to have a police report. So we called the police. They came out, did their thing, and, and um, 
And we didn't tell him who it was. We didn't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't ever, I don't remember anybody. I, I don't think I did. I don't think anyone else did. No, we didn't, did we? Yeah, we didn't. And we, we didn't tell him, oh, we, you know, we think it was this person or anything like that. Because we were just brokenhearted for him. And what was, what was awesome about that was that the response of the leadership of the church was not to be angry. The response of our home wasn't, after everything we did, how could he and allow offense to come into our heart? It was bad enough the church got broken into, a lamp got smashed, some stuff got wrecked, and a guitar was stolen. But what had been really tragic is if we would have allowed the thing that was done to change our hearts towards him. And I really believe that was what the enemy wanted because he wanted Dennis to be cut off from people that loved him. Because when he was cut off from people that loved him, he had him right where he wanted him. But the response of us, the leadership of the church, and the response of our home was just brokenhearted for him. Knowing, man, what, what kind of place must he have been in for him to do something like that? And it was genuine. It wasn't, this is how we have to respond because this is what Jesus said. It was genuinely because of the Gospel changing us and because of the love we had in our hearts for Him. We were brokenhearted for Him, but we weren't brokenhearted by Him. And so, about, I don't know, maybe five, six months later, four months later, Merle called me and said, hey, I think Dennis is behind the church. And so I came up here and He's laying on the concrete pad back there between the picnic tables, and he's laying in his own urine again. And this time, he looks really bad. And I said, Dennis, what are you doing? Trying to kill myself. I said, it it looks like you're succeeding. He said, yep. And there's empty liquor bottles next to him drained. I don't know how many of them he drank then, but probably a lot of them. He, he couldn't even keep his eyes open. His skin was like yellow. It just, he was in bad shape. And I was like, well, what do I do? I prayed for him. He didn't sober up. He didn't wake up, nothing. And um, so I called the hospital and I said, there's a guy here and I, I think he needs an ambulance. He's, he says he's trying to kill himself drinking and it, I think he's going to succeed. And they said, well, what you could do, the best thing to do really, because we can't take someone if they say no, is call the police. If he's threatened to kill himself, they will come out and take him. They'll bring him back to the station. They'll get him sobered up so that he can undergo a psychiatric evaluation before they'll let him go. And at least he'll be sober and have a couple days to think about what he's trying to do. They said, and they can take him whether he wants to go or not if if he's actually said he's going to kill himself. I said, they, they won't arrest him? They said, no. She said, no, no, no. It's, it's actually just to keep them from endangering themselves. They'll come get him. I said, oh, okay. So I called the police and I told them right up front. I said, listen, I do not want this guy arrested. He's not trespassing. He's, he's nothing like that. He's just, he says he's trying to kill himself and I'm afraid he's going to succeed. And I just, I don't know what else to do. And the hospital said to call you guys. They said, yeah, no problem. We'll send some, send a couple of people by. Well, they came to pick him up and as he's leaving, I said, hey, Dennis, what did you do with the guitar? I leaned it up against a brick wall. I said, what brick wall? Yep. That was it. Heads to the police station. Actually, he looked at me and said, you call the cops? (laughs) (laughs) And so, off he goes. Well, I got a call from a detective a week later or so, and they said, hey, just want to let you know that we've uh, concluded the case of the church being broken into. It actually turns out it was a guy named Dennis blank blank. And I said, oh, we, we kind of knew that. We didn't want him to get arrested for it. And he said, well, when they brought him in, uh, we fingerprinted him just for ID's sake. And when the fingerprints matched the ones when we came out to do the, the police report, and I was like, well, we don't want to press charges. He said, well, it's kind of late for that now because uh, you filed the report. You know, and we had to file the report just for insurance. The church was broke at the time. I mean, literally, like, we didn't take in enough to cover our bills. It was miraculous that we were able to pay the bills that we had. And, um, and so I was like, well, that stinks. And about a month later, we get a phone call. I get a phone call, and it was uh, it was a... Uh, someone from the magistrate's office, and they said, hey, we're, we're calling because uh, the case of Dennis is going to be coming before us, 
And uh, what we're wanting to recommend, if it's okay with you, is that he gets uh, court-ordered to a rehab facility and, um, and, and rather than prison sentencing, if that's, you know, if that's okay with you. If, if not, you can come and you can make a statement as to why you'd want him locked up. And I said, no, 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 we, we want that. He said, okay, well, he may end up going to jail anyways because you know, there's a cost to the rehab program and he doesn't have any money. I said, we, we'll, we will pay for the, for the rehab. The church will pay for it. The guy said, aren't you guys the victims? <laughs> and the truth is, we're not. He is. That's the truth. You're not the victim in this life. Because you're more than an overcomer. You're more than a conqueror. You're never a victim. The only one that can make you a victim is you. It's the truth. No one can ever victimize you if you refuse to be a victim and you see it for what it is. And you see that He didn't come in here and victimize me. He came in here because He's a victim of believing lies. He doesn't understand who He is. And He thought the only way that He could succeed in life was by coming and breaking in and stealing a guitar. Suddenly now, I'm empowered because I can have grace and forgiveness towards Him because I'm not the victim hoping He gets what He deserves. I'm more than a conqueror in Christ hoping He gets what He deserves because of what Christ has done for Him. And so, so I said, no, yeah, we'll, we will, we'll pay for it. And the church paid for it. Well, um, about, maybe it was probably about two years later, year and a half later, I get a phone call. Hey, Roy, it's Dennis. I said, hey. Hey, man, I just was calling to, to say thank you. They told me that you guys had been the ones that paid for my rehab program and 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 uh, and it's just done wonders in my life, and I, I'm I'm living in Spartanburg right now, or otherwise I'd come to church, but I can't get a ride there, and I got to go to one of the churches that the place that I work at um, goes to. And I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "Oh, I I work at the halfway house that I got sent to after I got out of rehab. I I went there and and completed the program, and they liked me so much they hired me on." And so I'm helping guys that are coming out of jail to get acclimated to, to going back out into the workplace. And I was like, that is awesome. He goes, yeah, do you know where my moped is? <laughs> True story. <laughs> I said, you got any idea where that moped is? And I said, no, I, I, I think that, I think that uh, your, your sister came out. He said, man, my sister died while I was in that rehab. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, I, I, I wouldn't know where it is. He said, all right, well, I just wanted to say thanks and tell everyone at the church thanks and I love them and I'm sorry. And I said, man, we're, you don't have to apologize to us. We are thrilled and I know the people of the church will be thrilled to hear what you're doing now. And then a little while later, me and Patty were in, I promise there's a point to all this. Me and Patty were in Myrtle Beach we and Patty were in Myrtle Beach on vacation, and Merle calls me and says, dude, I think my guitar is for sale on Craigslist right now. And I said, really? He said, yeah. It's fishy, though, because the guy put a picture of a white Duesenberg on there, but when I called and talked to him about it, he said it's orange. And there's not very many of those guitars in orange, and I know there wasn't a bunch of them around here. I think it's mine. He said, but the guy got shady and he got like kind of fishy and he told me it's sold and now he won't respond to my or his emails he won't respond to my emails and he said so i put an ad on craigslist that said if you bought an orange Duesenberg guitar in greenville today you bought a stolen guitar and a guy contacted me and said i didn't buy the guitar but i did go to the guy's house and almost bought it but something seemed off so i snuck a picture of the serial number and i can send it to you if you want yeah and Merle said, send it. So Merle was calling me. He said, listen, do you still have the, the certificate of authenticity from my guitar at your house? Because I had it for the insurance report. I said, yeah, it's there. And he said, is there any way you can get a picture? So I called Judd. Judd went by my house. Or you might have been living with us. I don't remember. No, you went by the house and, and took a picture of it and sent it to me. And they matched. So then Merle said, here's the... Um, and the guy had the guy's phone number. He said, here's the guy's phone number. Um... That the, that the guy that went to get the guitar had. So I texted the guy and I said, listen, I sent, sent him a picture of the serial number and the certificate of authenticity. I said, a guy came to your house and took a picture of the serial number of the guitar that you sold. Because then he told Merle it's sold and wouldn't respond to any more emails. And I said, a guy came to your house and took a picture of the serial number of the guitar that you sold. 
and it matches the serial number that I have here on the certificate of authenticity that's already been reported to the police. You sold stolen merchandise, and I can prove it. I said, if I were you, I'd help us get it back. Two seconds later, my phone rings. It's him. Hey, man, I actually didn't sell the guitar. He said, I, I, I knew something was off. I, he said, it's a long story. I said, I got time. He said, well, one night I was coming back from Easley. He said, this was like years ago. I was coming back from Easley late at night with my buddy from the, from the racetrack. And as we were coming down Wade Hampton, kind of by a canopy car wash, we, I, I looked and, and there's this like little brick wall that, that in front of this business and it looked like a guitar leaning up against that brick wall and I thought and I asked my buddy and he didn't want to stop it was like 2 30 in the morning and it was raining so we just went home he's like and I was laying in bed and at 3 30 in the morning I told my wife I gotta go back I gotta know if that was a guitar it's killing me to think there's a guitar sitting out there in the rain and she said you're crazy and I said yep but I'm going so he comes back here sure enough it's a guitar realizes it's a nice guitar, he collects vintage and antique guitars. He puts it in a dehumidifier and slowly dehumidifies the guitar so that it doesn't dry out too quickly and warp and twist and cup and crack. He cleans the electronics and oils everything, and the guitar is in perfect condition. And he said, but I always knew there was something off. And he said... Um, so I just held on to it, and I was just going to keep it. And then the other day, I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll just, it's been long enough. I'll go ahead and sell it. He's like, but something wouldn't, I couldn't feel right about it. A guy came and looked at it, and I kind of talked him out of it, and then I just told everyone that it was sold. He said, so I'm sure it's your guitar. And I told him what had happened. He said, well, I know it's your guitar. He said, um, if you want, you can come pick it up. He said, I just have one request. I said, what's that? He said, I'll be honest, I just kind of feel like I've backslidden and I'm far from God. Would you guys pray for me when you come to get that guitar? I was like, uh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> sure. So, me and Patty's older brother and one of her uncles were hanging out. Um, and I said, i got to go get that guitar. They wanted to come with me. We drove over to the guy's house. Super nice guy. He's got all these old classic cars. And he says, um, we were ta- he was talking to Patty's brother about the cars. He said, yeah, I'm actually going to be selling all of them. I, I just, my back's so tore up, I can't even bend over the hood to work on them anymore. And I mean, like white on rice. Patty's brother was like, oh, your back's hurt? You know, <laughs> like, could we, could we pray for you? And he said, yeah. Actually, no, he said, I can't, I can't work on them anymore. I said, do you have back pain? And he said, yeah. And so Patty's brother said, well, could we pray for you? So Patty's brother, Kurt, lays his hands on the guy's back, prays for him. The guy bends over, starts touching his toes. Now he's really freaking out. He's like, oh, my, that's weird. That is weird. He's like, I mean, I believe in prayer, but that's weird. And, uh, and I said, you know what it is? It's just God really wants you to know that he loves you. And that even though you feel far from him in your mind, you're really not far from him because he's never left you. He's never forsaken you. You just are alienated in your mind, and he wants you back. He wants the relationship with you, and he wants to know he loves you. And this whole thing could have been for a few reasons, but one of them could have been so that you understand that the Father loves you. And then now he's teared up and thanked us for coming, and we prayed with him and prayed over him, and then we left. Well, so Merle got his guitar back. Dennis has a job helping other guys that are going through what he's been going through. Someone's back was healed. And someone knows that they're really not that far from God. That He's really right there. They just needed to understand that. Here's another cool part. So the church was broke at the time. The car's, the car's going to cost us 2500 bucks to replace. And we're, we're, we, we talked about it and we were like, well, we just, we'll, you know, we'll just write a check. Even though we don't really have the money, we'll just write a check and cover the guitar and so I was kind of bummed about that, to be honest, you know. And um, so I got home that day, the day that we found out it was stolen, the day we wrote the check or told well, that we would write the check. And I went to the mailbox. I opened up the mailbox. And there's a letter in the mailbox. And it says, Outreach Church, care of Roy Giese. I thought, well, that's weird. No return address. 
I open it up, and there's a little note folded around something, and it says, uh, never met you, never been there, but heard your church does awesome stuff in your community. Signed, so-and-so. Opened up what it was wrapped around. It was a check for ten times the amount that we had just committed to pay for the guitar. It was already sitting in my mailbox. We had no idea. And I was thinking about this all this week and tying it all together, and I thought, I wonder if God, because He's outside of time, sees the way that we respond to things and is already moving on our behalf because we respond in love rather than responding in hate and because He's promised that He'll work everything for our good if we love Him and are called according to His purpose. And no greater love has any man than this that He would lay down His life his right to be angry, his right to hold judgment and offense, his right to demand a pound of flesh for what happened to him. What if God was already moving on the heart of somebody four days before the thing that was done was done because he saw ahead looking because he's outside of time, sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end and was moving on our behalf because he saw the way that the church body and family would respond. And what if everything being worked for our good was dependent on the way that we respond in that situation? What if we could have cursed Him, become angry and offended, and that would have never happened and we never would have had a whole series of events happen because we chose to respond in less than He chose to respond to us when we did far worse? What if we could have prayed and just said, well, God said you're gonna, you said, God, you're going to work all things for good because we love you and are called according to your purpose the whole time having hatred in our heart towards Dennis because after everything we did, how dare he? And hold on to our rights. And the whole time your hands wrap tightly around those rights, no one can take it from you. And God has no way to place what he wanted to in your hand. And he's in heaven just saying, I want to work this for good but I can't do anything when your hands wrap that tightly around your right to be angry, your right to hold on to bitterness, your right to hold on to hatred. And I have an amazing plan to work this for good, but I would be violating my own word if I did it while you were holding on to hatred in your heart. What if the guitar getting stolen wasn't the total plan of the enemy? What if that was just a part of the plan that the whole plan was to get our hearts to become offended, bitter, and angry? and to respond in less than love and prove once again that Christians are only Christians as long as everything goes their way? What if the very people who are called to respond in love respond in anger and allow something that was done to us to produce the same thing in us? wonder if maybe none of that would have happened. What if your breakthrough in a lot of situations is actually a whole lot more tied to what you do and how you respond than you think? What if it's not about a sovereign move of God, but what about if God's already sovereignly promised something and now He's waiting for you to move? There's a condition. And we know that God works all things for good. It doesn't end there. To those that love Him and are called according to His promise. The enemy can never change the fact that your purpose. The enemy can never change the fact that God called you according to His purpose, but He'll work really hard to try to get you to mess up the first part of that and get bitterness and hatred into your heart so that God's hands are tied and so that there's a part of your life that He can steal, that He can kill, and that He can destroy. What if you're one repentance away from seeing the hand of God move in your life in a situation that you've all but written off because you think that maybe He doesn't make good on His promises until we get to heaven? What if repentance for things that, was done, that were done against you doesn't look like you calling the person and asking them to forgive you? It looks like you changing the way you think about what happened and about the one it happened through. What if you don't have to call the person and say, I'm sorry. Because repentance doesn't mean apologizing. It literally, when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, He said, change the way that you think. That's what He said in the Greek. Metanoia, change the way you think. 
For the kingdom of God is at hand. What was he saying to them? He was saying, you guys have been thinking that the kingdom of God coming looked a certain way and you've studied the prophecies and you've read the prophecies and because of that, you're looking for a certain thing. You're going to have to change the way that you think because the kingdom of heaven is here now and if you don't change the way you think, you're going to miss it. And because they refused to change the way they thought and because they wanted Him to fit the mold they had built rather than understand that the kingdom of heaven coming was Jesus standing in front of them, they actually missed it and they killed the very One who was standing in front of them that was there to be their Savior. So what if in these situations, and I'm just going to close up with this because I really want to give us the time to respond to this. What if there's situations in your life where you need to repent? And, and the very thought of that is offensive to us because we go, how, why would I ever repent for what they did to me? Because the fact that you're still holding on to what they did to you and you're allowing that to turn your heart and make it bitter and, and full of hatred towards that person, you're closing God's hands to be able to respond and work that situation for your good. And your repentance doesn't mean you apologizing. You may have had nothing to do with what happened. You may be totally, 100% completely innocent And you may have had zero to do with the thing that was done to you. But you have everything to do with the way that you respond to what was done. You cannot control what other people do to you. They're going to do things. I wish people wouldn't. But we live in an imperfect world full of imperfect people and people are going to do things to us. People are going to steal things from us. People are going to betray us. What if God already has someone picked out that He wants to move in to replace that friend that betrayed you, but He's not going to bring them into a hateful situation and He's just waiting for you to release the hate that's in your heart so that He can work that situation for good? What if He's already got the resources to replace what was stolen from you and He's just waiting for you to actually release the hatred in your heart towards that person so that He can actually move on the heart of someone? and work that situation for your good. And what if you've been praying for sometimes years for Him to work something for good and He's going, I would love to. Would you just love them in response? Would you just let me? I want to work all things for good. I do. I I really want to cause everything that happened to work for your good. But you have to love me. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my command. What did He command us? Love God above all else and love our neighbor as ourself. We can't hold hatred in our heart towards our neighbor and then stand on a promise that God said was for people who love Him and are called according to His purpose. It doesn't work. So I just, I know for a fact, not it's not even a prophetic thing. I just know because there's this many people in the room that right now, as I've been talking about this, there's people who are thinking of certain situations where they've held on to hatred or bitterness or anger and they've been waiting for God to work it for good and God hasn't yet. I know that. You know that. But just thinking about it doesn't change it. You have to actually do something. So what I would love is if that's you and there's a situation in your life where someone did something to you, this is not minimizing what was done to you. This isn't saying get over it. This isn't saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Who cares? This is saying, listen, it was bad enough that they did it the first time. To allow it to continue to destroy your life for years later is even worse. That's a far greater tragedy. What was done the first time may have been absolutely horrendous, but even more horrendous is the fact that it's still stealing from you years down the road. And that you're waiting for God to work it for good, and God can't because He's bound by His Word, because He exalted His Word above even His very name. And for Him to work it out for good on your behalf when there's hatred in your heart towards the person in that situation would be a violation of what He promised. And He won't do that because He can't. He's not a man that he should lie. There's no shadow turning in him. So if that's you, today could be the day that breakthrough starts. Today could be the day that healing starts, that restoration starts, that all things start to work for good. And all you have to do is repent. Forgive. If you're holding on to unforgiveness, it's because you're seeing them 
and you're putting yourself in the victim place. And a lot of times we think, well, if I forgive them, that's saying what they did is okay and they deserve to pay for it. Listen, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. When you hold that opinion, not only do you keep yourself from Him working all things for good, but you also tie His hands from moving on your behalf and convicting that person and bringing them into the right place because you're saying, don't worry, God, I'll take the vengeance in this situation. I'll just shun them, be angry at them, talk badly about them, give them dirty looks when I see them, and hold hatred in my heart. That's way better than what you could do anyways, God. So if that's you, would you just be bold enough to stand up? Yeah. If you'd say, you know what, there, there, there is. There's a situation, or maybe there's situations where I've held on to bitterness and hatred in my heart and I realize that it's only stealing and destroying and killing from me. If, you, if that's you, would you, would you uh, church, just look around. I, it's, there's too many for us to try to... Find someone near you that's standing. And let's lay hands on them and pray for them. But here's the thing. Us praying for you is simply to encourage you. It's simply to let you know that we're with you and that we believe in you and that we love you and that we support you. But you have to be the one that actually changes your thoughts. You have to be the one that says, I'm going to allow the Word of God to realign the way that I think and I'm going to choose to see that person the way God sees them. I'm going to choose to remember that there was a time where I deserved far worse because of the things that I did and yet He looked at me and saw me and responded to me in love. And how dare I hold hatred towards somebody who did something like that when God has shown such a great love to me. Because that's what will change things is actually to repent and change the way you think. To renew your mind. So let's just pray, family, that, that the love of God would fill their hearts towards that person and would overwhelm them. They wouldn't be able to look at that person without feeling so badly for them and understand they must have been so hurt. They must have been so lost. They must have been so deceived for them to do that. If they knew who they were, they would have never done that. If they understood what they were doing, there's no way. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because if someone knew what they were doing, they never would have done what they did. And here's the truth. If they haven't come to you and asked for forgiveness, they are being tormented far worse than anything you could dream up on your own anyways because the Holy Spirit won't leave them alone and that conviction keeps them up at night. So rather than praying just so that God will work it for your good, how about praying for that person that God would bless them? That they would understand how loved they are. That they would understand what they did wrong. That they would ask forgiveness so that they could be forgiven so that they could have the same peace that you have at night. So that not one more day, not one more night would be stolen from them because of something that they've done, but that they could have the peace that passes all understanding and receive the forgiveness that Jesus shed His blood on the cross for them to have. So that God could begin to move in everyone's situation and work all things for good. Because that's what He does. He's a redeemer. He's a restorer. He can even restore time lost. There's not a day lost. I promise He can. He can restore time lost. He can restore relationships. He has unlimited resources. It's never cost anybody anything for you to get blessed. It's only ever cost Him. And He has an unlimited supply. So God, I just thank You right now. Not for some magical moment, God, but for a truth to get placed so deep in our hearts that it forever changes the way that we think. For true repentance right now in Jesus' name. For true forgiveness. For a forgiveness not to receive something, but for a forgiveness because we want to see someone else receive what we have. That peace, that joy, that love that we feel that's unexplainable, that can only come from walking with a pure heart and a clean conscience. God, I pray right now, that, 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 that years of hurt could be shed, that, that years of walls, that years of anxiety, and that years of regret and, 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 and even hostility and hatred and bitterness could just be shed in a moment by Your Holy Spirit. That You would come right now and just completely remove, that You would circumcise the, from the heart right now and cut it away. 
as the understanding of how loved they are replaces the understanding that they've had for so long. I pray right now for new eyes, God, for, for that person, that every person right now who's standing here would receive the eyes of heaven, that they would be able to look at that person and see them as a daughter and a son of yours who's lost and desperately needs to come home. That they would be able to see them as the victim, knowing that they were the one that was being used by the enemy. That they would have a heart of compassion towards that person and understand that maybe they were just doing the best that they knew how. Maybe they didn't even intentionally try to hurt you. Maybe what they did was a misunderstanding on both sides. Choose to see the best. Choose to forgive. And even if they meant it in the worst possible way, don't let the sin that was against you compound and continue to steal long after it was done. Not one more day. Not one more day. I, I, I feel it right now like God wants you to know, not one more, it's not okay for one more day to be lost to anger, hate, bitterness, regret. Not one more day of living apart from the amazing plan of restoration that He has. Not one more day of holding on to a right that He Himself doesn't even hold against us. God, I thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen.